Well, we are in John chapter 14 this morning, John chapter 14, trust in times of trouble. We're in this series, Who is Jesus? A number of years ago, I participated in a race, uh, a run, a 10K run. Didn't win the race, but I ran hard. Before the run began, uh, the starting line was right next to a cathedral, a beautiful cathedral, and they were holding a worship service for the runners. So a good number of the runners went to that service, not because we were so spiritual, but it was a really cold morning and the church was heated. So we slipped in and we listened. And the minister that morning, he quoted John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And after quoting that verse, he said, I was in this multi-faith gathering just a few days ago, this inter-religious gathering, and a priest from another religion quoted this verse of Jesus, and he said that these words are true. They're true because Jesus was self-giving, and the way of the divine is to be self-giving. My running mate He was a new believer in Jesus. He had come to faith in Jesus, coming out of another religion. And when he heard the minister say those words, he just blurted out, that was so lame. So was it lame? Was it wrong? Or did the words of that minister reflect what Jesus actually said? John chapter 14 is one of the most read, recited, beloved texts in all of Scripture. It's so loved because it reveals profound truth. It provides comforting words from the good shepherd. But before reading the text, let's consider the context. What's happening in the life of Jesus and his disciples? If we go back to chapter 11... Jesus hears that his good friend Lazarus has died. And so he travels south from Galilee to Judea with his disciples. There in Judea, he raises Lazarus from the dead. A tremendous sign, but the religious leaders, when they see what is happening among the Jewish people, they become very concerned and they plan to put Jesus to death. Jesus and his disciples, they're aware of this mounting religious opposition. Jesus tells his disciples that one of them will actually betray him. Jesus tells his disciples that he will depart, but his disciples are not able to go where he is going. There's even contention among the disciples because they're arguing about who is the greatest among them. Peter, he lacks some self-awareness. He says to Jesus, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. He doesn't realize that he is being sifted. And in the verse just prior to chapter 14, the last verse of chapter 13, Jesus says this to Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So before breakfast, Peter, this disciple who has said that he would lay down his life for Jesus, he will deny Jesus three times. In the context, there's uncertainty, there's doubt, there's, there are questions. The disciples, they're under tremendous emotional pressure. They believe that they are on the brink of a catastrophic failure, but it's exactly in that moment when the revolution, revelation of truth will come. And isn't that so often the truth for us? It's when we ask questions, it's when we doubt, it's when we are in that moment of crisis that God draws near and reveals himself. Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows that he's heading for the agony of the cross. And he delivers a discourse which becomes known as the farewell discourse, chapters 14 through 17. It's a moment when the disciples should rally around Jesus and pray for him, comfort him, but they are unable What will Jesus say to them in this moment of trouble? Well, chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You're there, it's, it's plural. And so all of the disciples are disturbed. They're, they're shaken to the core. Jesus, he's not afraid. He knows that he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He will rise again. No one can take his life from him. He trusts the Father. But the disciples, they need to learn to trust. In the verses that follow, Jesus will say things that the disciples will not understand until later. But even so, Jesus says these words, words of comfort, words of promise, How will he comfort the hearts of his disciples? Well, let's read on. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That word believe, it refers to a profound, personal trust that comes out of relationship. In this moment of uncertainty, in this moment of doubt, of betrayal, of impending loss, they are to trust in God. In essence, that's what Jesus says. Trust in God, trust also in me. Well, well, why should they trust? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where, to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In our North American culture, it's not unusual for people to say when someone passes away, he went to a better place. She went to a better place. No matter how the person has lived, no matter whether the person has believed in Jesus or not, he went to a better place. She went to a better place. 
We try to comfort each other. Where, did, where does that language come from? Well, it comes from this text. But what we just say so easily, does it reflect what Jesus actually meant to say? In this passage, Jesus uses a, a metaphor. He, he says that in my Father's house are many rooms. And so he, he pictures heaven as a home. In the days of Jesus... The father would have a home, and then when his sons married, they would add to that home, and so the estate would grow. There would be the father's house, and then the, the rooms of the sons. There would be this large estate surrounding a communal courtyard. This was true in Israel. It was also true in Greece. The Romans had their villas, and so when Jesus says father's house, this is what the disciples have in mind. They have in mind extended family, secure bonded relationships, good times. Jesus has been talking about going to the father, and as the son of the father, he will go ahead of his disciples and prepare rooms for them. What does he mean to say by many rooms? That word Rooms, when it was translated into Latin, it was translated as mansiones. And mansiones, it means temporary dwellings, way stations. Now, if you grew up reading the King James Version, then you would have read this, in my father's house are many mansions. And so sometimes if we just read the English Translation, the King James Version, we imagine these luxurious dwellings. Others, they go back to that original meaning of mansiones, and they say, no, actually we go from temporary dwelling to temporary dwelling. We're in this process of spiritual evolution. We go through this process of reincarnation. We go from spiritual plane to spiritual plane, hopefully someday reaching perfection. And we hope we, we don't mess up, because if we do, we go backward. That has nothing to do with, Jesus, with what Jesus meant to say here. The word that he uses for room, what it means is permanent dwelling places. So Jesus goes ahead of the disciples and prepares permanent rooms for them. They can trust Jesus. In heaven, space is not a problem. The multitudes will not be crowded in heaven. You know, it's going to be an awesome family reunion, isn't it? For those of us that trust in Jesus. Jesus has gone ahead of us. And he says to his disciples on that day, I'm going ahead of you to prepare rooms. He's going with a a sense of purpose to make those rooms ready for them. And he says in verse 3, I will come again and take you to myself. Jesus will return to his disciples through the resurrection appearances. He will return to his disciples after Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. In verse 23 of chapter 14, Jesus uses the same word room for our hearts. And so your heart, my heart, is to be a permanent dwelling place for Jesus himself. God dwelling within us. Each one of us a room for God. And it also means that Jesus will return at his second coming and he will usher all those that have believed in him to their rooms. This week I I spoke at my uncle John's funeral. My uncle John, he was an usher. He was an usher for 40 years. He made a career out of it. 
He was this smiling, welcoming presence. And so for 40 years, he ushered God's people to places prepared for them. Moments of worship and praise. Moments of prayer. Moments of hearing the word of God. Moments of being prepared for life with God now and forever. He died 10 days ago. He trusted in Jesus. And I believe that Jesus ushered him to his room with the key. Because my Uncle John, he loved keys. <laughs> his pocket was always full of keys. I can still hear them jingling. Jesus prepared a room for him with his name on it. The day is coming when each of us, each one of us that is trusted in Jesus, we will be ushered to our room. Each time that we enter a worship service, we should remember this. That the day is coming when we will not just enter a worship service for an hour or so. We're actually going to be ushered by Jesus into the Father's presence and we will be with him forever. And so Jesus says to his disciples on that day, and he would say to us today, trust me. Trust me because I'm going to prepare a room just for you. Thomas, he's one of the disciples, and he's, he's kind of like us. On some days, he's really courageous, and on other days, he's apprehensive. So he says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> How can we know the way? He should know the way because he knows Jesus, but he doesn't really understand. And that's Okay. His questioning, it's, it's an opportunity again for God to reveal himself to him. So if you sit there with questions, ask them. Ask God your question. God is more than happy to respond to your question. Jesus says to him, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If there ever was a summary of the gospel, it's this statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It speaks to our greatest aspirations to know God, to have life now and forever. Now, it's quite exclusive, isn't it? Jesus doesn't just point to a way. He doesn't just blaze a trail which we should follow. He says that he is the way, the only way to God. It's a shocking claim in our tolerant, pluralistic world where we would just love to be able to develop our own spiritualities, our own religions, our own creeds, our own institutions, invent our own ways of getting to God and somehow get there. And at the end of the day, it's all okay. It doesn't matter. To understand the exclusiveness of Jesus' claim, we need to look at Jesus. How did he prepare the way to those rooms? It was through his going, it was through his death and resurrection that the way was opened to the Father. It cost him his life. It meant the Son of God dead on a cross. Later, following Jesus' death and resurrection... Peter, 
The same one that denied him three times, he is before the Jewish council. This is after Pentecost. And he makes a bold, bold claim. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is not a truth. He is the truth. He is the supreme revelation of God. He is God's reality defined for us. Before Pilate, during his trial, Jesus speaks to the intent of his coming, his purpose for coming. He makes it very clear. John chapter 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? A parenthesis. These verses, they're found in the oldest fragment that we have of the New Testament. Uh, it's the, the fragment is dated to the year 110 AD. And it's important to remember that this New Testament document that we have, it is the most well-attested document in all of antiquity. Nothing comes close. And so if we dismiss the New Testament, then we might as well erase history. Many in our culture would resonate with Pilate's question, what is truth? What was Oxford Dictionary's Word for the year 2016. Any of you know? What was the word of the year last year? Post-truth. What does that mean? I'll quote. It's a word which refers to circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. It means that truth belongs to another time. For our time, it has become unimportant or irrelevant. So the conversation is just shaped by our own emotions, by our own beliefs, our own created truth. Political commentators, they talk about post-truth politics around the world. It's a global phenomenon. It's happening here in Canada. It's happening in the United States of America. It's happening in China, in Japan, in Turkey, Australia, Great Britain. It's happening because of this 24-hour news cycle, the pervasiveness of social media, unbalanced reporting. And in this shadowy world where nothing needs to be substantiated, we just message people, and if it's not going well, we just re-message them. If people aren't accepting our image, we just re-image ourselves. We just create a new truth. What is actually true doesn't matter. And so in this world of fake news, who can we trust? As followers of Jesus, we believe in the truth. Absolute truth. The fact that there is fake news today, that people are re-messaging each other, trying to create truth, does not change reality. 
There is objective truth. There are historical facts. When Pilate asked that question, what is truth? Jesus remained silent, but he did give an answer. His answer was his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And nothing more needed to be said, and nothing more needs to be said. Truth was revealed at Calvary. We can trust him. Because he was the life of God, death couldn't hold him down. His life was indestructible. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus bridged the gulf between we sinners and the holy God. By taking upon himself our rebellion, our hatred toward God, our separation from God, all our sin, by dying in our place, he paid the price for our redemption. And redemption means that he bought us back so that we might be restored to our original purpose, so that we might actually live for God's glory, should we put our trust in him. And so if we come to Jesus broken, desperate, just saying, Lord, have mercy, I need you, I'm a sinner. If we put our trust in him and say, thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin upon yourself, If we receive him as Savior and Lord, then Jesus sends his spirit to abide in us and we come alive. We have heaven in our hearts. We can't get to the rooms if we don't follow the way of Jesus. The only way to the rooms is through the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. That's why he's not just a way. He is the way. And the essence of heaven is not to actually get to a place, but to know a person, to know Jesus. Jesus, um, when he was praying to the Father in John chapter 17, he prayed to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. My running mate, that morning when he was in that worship service and he cried out, that was so lame. Why did he react that way? You see, my friend, he came from another religion and he met Jesus in prison. He was a drug addict. He didn't need some fluffy religious language. He didn't need for someone to say some nice things to him. He needed to know the way. He needed to know that Jesus had died for him. He was broken. He was a mess. He knew he was a sinner. He needed to experience forgiveness of sin. He needed to know the way of redemption. He didn't need to know a truth. He needed to know the truth that could set him free. He didn't need to hear some nice words about life. He needed to know the life that could enter him and fill him with hope. And that's why he cried out, that was so lame, and it was. He didn't need to know a way. He needed to know Jesus. So my friend, if you're not on the way of Jesus this morning, you're wandering. You're just wandering. 
There's one door to life, and that's Jesus. Jesus says, trust me, because I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus reveals something beautiful to his disciples. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. It'll be enough. It's sufficient. Don't talk about a future room. Have God appear in the room right now. Like Moses having a vision of God. Like like Isaiah having a vision of God. Have God appear right now. And Jesus asks, have I been with you so long? And the sense is, for so long a time, have I been with you for so long a time and you still don't know me? That word know is the same word know that we discovered in John chapter 10 when the good shepherd says to his disciples, I know my own, my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That kind of knowing where we just don't know facts about a person, we actually know the person. (laughs) We know the person intimately, experientially. Philip doesn't know Jesus that way yet. But once again, Philip's lack of understanding is just an opportunity for God to reveal himself, for Jesus to speak truth into his life. And so Jesus makes this stunning declaration in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the revelation, the visible manifestation of the Father. Philip, if you know me, you know the Father. If you have seen me, you've seen God, Philip. Later, John, one of the disciples who was there listening, he understood. And he wrote these words in John chapter 1, John 1, 14. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A little farther down in that same chapter, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. So Jesus, he revealed the Father's glory, his character, his words, his works. Everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, it reflected what the Father was doing and saying. Jesus can say in verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Father and Son, distinct persons, members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but completely one, a complete unity. And so Jesus says to his disciples on that day, trust me because I have shown you the Father. Look at me. 
and you will see the Father. And then Jesus reveals something special for us. For those disciples on that day and for us. Chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does Jesus mean to say when he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do? Will the one that follows Jesus do works even more spectacular than those of Jesus? Jesus calmed the seas. He fed the multitudes. He raised the dead. Will we, his disciples, do works even more spectacular than those of Jesus? I don't think that's what Jesus means to say here. That word works, it refers to the whole of Jesus' ministry. His teaching, his preaching, his proclamation of the gospel, deeds of mercy, healings, miracles. If you walk through the lobby here, you can read the mission statement of Willingdon Church. To know Jesus Christ personally and to carry on his ministry. That mission statement, it reflects the heart of Jesus for us, his disciples. The disciples, their greater works will be possible because Jesus is going to the Father. His death, his resurrection, and Pentecost will usher in a new era. A new era of clarity and power. Those disciples that trust in him, when they proclaim the gospel, they'll be able to look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus, at Jesus' complete vindication, and they will preach the gospel with clarity. And those that hear the message will also have the clarity of what Jesus has already done, accomplished, done in history. And it will also be an era of power because Jesus will be present in the life of each believer. As we read through chapter 14, Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit over his disciples. And so each disciple will be empowered by the Spirit to speak the words of Jesus, to do the works of Jesus. So at Pentecost, the disciples, they proclaim the gospel. And on that day alone, more than 3,000 come to faith in Jesus. More come to faith in Jesus on that day than throughout Jesus' entire ministry. And over the last 2,000 years, the disciples of Jesus continue to follow him around the globe under the empowerment of the Spirit doing these greater works. What a privilege. What a privilege to serve the Father, to walk with the clarity of Jesus' death and resurrection. What a privilege to walk under the empowerment of the Spirit and be used by God to pray the prayers that Jesus would pray, to say the things that he would say, to do the works that he would do. In this way, the Father is glorified in the Son. And what's the means for doing these works? Well, we pray in Jesus' name. In the ancient world, a name it reflected who the person was. And so if we pray in the name of Jesus, we pray in a way consistent with his character. We pray under his authority. 
It doesn't mean adding in Jesus' name to the end of every prayer. You can do that. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus by the Spirit. But to pray in Jesus' name just doesn't mean to just add this magical formula to each prayer and try to conform God's mind to ours. No, the way that we pray, it should, re- should reflect what is in the heart of Jesus, what he delights in. And what does he delight in? Well, if you read through these chapters of John, you discover that Jesus wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to love each other. In chapter 13 of John, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It says that he loved them to the end. He served his disciples. At the end of that chapter, he says to his disciples, chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In the verse immediately following our text, chapter 14, verse 15, we read, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we want to pray a prayer that we know that Jesus will answer for sure, let's pray to know him. To truly know him. Let's pray to love him. Lord, increase my love for you. Let's pray to love each other. That is right at the heart of Jesus' will. Jesus was the best friend the disciples could ever have had. He served them, he loved them, he washed their feet, he revealed the Father to them, he went before them, prepared a room for them. If we are his disciples, his true disciples, we will be the best friends that people could ever have. Let's pray what Jesus prayed to the Father for us. This is John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may, be, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's an incredible promise. So if we pray a prayer in alignment with the heart, the will of Jesus, he will do it. It's a promise. A study was done recently, Canada-wide. The study is called Hemorrhaging Faith. And so a sociologist by the name of James Penner and his associates, they wanted to discover why people were either on the fence in regard to their faith or wandering from faith in Jesus. And they discovered that the biggest difference between those who are engaged in their faith and those that are fence-sitting is simply this. Those that are all in that truly believe in Jesus and follow him, they know that they have experienced God's love and they believe that Jesus answers their prayers. Pretty simple. Those that are all in, engaged in their faith in Canada, they believe that they have experienced God's love in a real, personal way, and they believe that God is alive and he answers their prayers. 
And so if we read these words that Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, and we doubt, we just sit there in our own cynicism, then we're probably on the fence or we're wandering. So I ask myself today, I ask you, have we truly experienced the love of Jesus? When we pray, do we truly believe that he hears us and that when we pray according to his will, he will respond? Jesus is not just a way. He is not just a truth. He never intended for people just to develop a religion around him. He came because he knew that if he didn't, we would be lost forever. There would be no way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, trust me, I go to prepare a room for you, a permanent dwelling place for you. Trust me, I have shown you the Father. Trust me, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Ask to know me, to truly know me. Ask to love me. Ask for love for each other. Trust me, if you pray according to my name, I will do it. And if you trust me, you will do the works that I do. You will speak the words that I speak. You will do the works that I do. You will love the way that I love. Trust me. Pastor Ron said that we are a house of prayer. And we want to be a house of prayer. We want to be a people that believes that when we pray, God hears us. And he responds. He answers. We want to be a people that walks with faith. And so this morning, we're going to continue to sing Pastor Ron's at the piano. Let's stand up. And uh, let's pray. You can pray with the person beside you. You can come forward for prayer. If you have never given your heart to Jesus, I would encourage you to do that today. You can come forward. You can pray with the person beside you. Maybe you're here and you need healing. Come for prayer. Maybe you're struggling in your faith and it's hard for you to trust Jesus. Come forward for prayer. Jesus' disciples, they struggled when he was here on earth. Sometimes we struggle. Come for prayer. We will pray in Jesus' name. And so I invite the prayer team to come forward. Let's worship.